Now, restore passenger rail protesters glued themselves to the Wellington Motorway this morning. At least 17 police officers were at the scene working to remove the protesters from the motorway using acetone to remove their hands that had been stuck to the road. In October of last year, six restore passenger rail protesters who invaded the motorway access to the terrace tunnel were charged with willful trespass when they blocked the road. And here we go again. With us is James Cockle, spokesperson for Restore Passenger Rail. James, welcome. Uh, hi, Wallace. Great to be with you. Good to have you on. My first thought, James, frankly, was how dangerous this looked. Lying on the road, you could have been killed. It, it is a risky thing to do, but we take every safety precaution possible to ensure the safety of both um, our supporters and of the travelling public. There were, what, eight protesters? What's happened to the others? What, where are they now? Uh, so the protesters this morning uh, were arrested. They were taken to Wellington um, Central Station and then charged with... Um, oh, it's a new one... Um, uh, danger to traffic or something along those lines, which is a, a little bit more of a harsh charge than people have been yep. charged with before, and they were taken to the Wellington District Court, and I don't know what's happened to them since then. I'm, I'm expecting they will have been out on bail by now, but I don't know that for sure. Of course, they're taking these, these actions because our government is refusing to take action on climate change. We're desperate, and I don't know if you know what the situation is, but if you do, and you're not taking action, I have to ask why. The method of protest, James, do you think this is an acceptable way to protest? Because many people going en route in the morning would probably think otherwise. Yeah, people are really annoyed. And, and I, I understand I would be annoyed if I was stuck in that, in that um, queue as well. So why'd you do it? And, pardon? Why'd you do it? Because it's the only action we can take that gets the attention of the media and the government. I don't know if you remember, um, a couple of years ago, I sat in front of a coal train carrying 500 tonnes of coal to be burned to dry milk. And you and I spoke about it on this show. Well, no, we didn't, because you didn't have me on the show, because nobody heard about it. These are the kinds of actions we have to take. People say, why don't you do other things? We've done the other things. We've been trying for years to, to get the government's attention and to get them to take action. And what they do to us is they kick us in the guts with a climate policy bonfire. It's a betrayal of our people. Let's go to the panel on this. Julia, you first. I think it's, a, I think it's ridiculous. We've got to have trains. We've got to have trains. I'm just worried about all those people glued together, and I'm worried about the effects of acetone because I do deal with a bit of acetone in my time. Um, but here's the thing. Look, it's the same here. We need trains. Because do you know Wallace now, okay, we're not, I haven't come in to see you today because of COVID, etc. But it takes me now five hours round trip to get into you and back again. Are you kidding? And that's, no, I'm not kidding. That what, you're, is and honestly, you're in the same city? Does it? Totally. I am now two hours on the motorway each way to get to you and back again. And when I'm an hour, what, an hour and a quarter in the studio, so it's a tad more. But that shows you how it's... And I've been on this panel, what, for 20, I don't know how many years. And it, it used to take me less... 45, 40 yep. minutes used to take. And now it's five hours in total. Okay, so you're broadly supportive of James uh, and the yeah. Restore Passenger Rail protesters totally. there. Uh, all right, James, stay there. Let's bring Phil O'Reilly in. 
Yeah, it was, um, it's good to have a debate and, a, and all this sort of stuff, but the, the challenge, of course, is that you just annoy the, the heck out of people and, and potentially the argument goes backwards. And I'm, I was reminded of, um, Joe, I'm interested in your view on this, the Extinction Rebellion movement in London. I was in London, I did, did one of their protests in London, was in gridlock, probably increasing climate change massively that particular afternoon. And as I understand it, they've actually started walking away from some of that kind of activity simply because... They're now realising it doesn't actually work because it just annoys people and actually doesn't get people to buy into the story of change that's necessary. So, I was interested that, that you guys still think it's worth doing, but uh, you know, uh, th- th- but these, uh, as I understand it, Extinction Rebellion in the UK and elsewhere is starting to walk away from that. James, yeah, Phil, as as um, other organisations have stepped up, we're one of eleven countries across the world in the UK, Italy, Sweden, uh, Norway, France, and others stand, standing up to take this kind of action. So in the UK, there is just stop oil taking action like we are. As other organisations have started to do that, Extinction Rebellion has started to expand um, their their message and expand their group. We need all of the groups um, being involved, the ones that are taking radical action like us and the ones that are getting people out on the streets. And boy, we'd love to have you involved. Well, I understand you're a lobbyist. And if you could get us some, some access, you could really help us. And, you know, there's a good reason to do so because... I'm sure you realise that we're on the track to go above 1.5 degrees, above 2 degrees. We're on a trajectory to go over 3 degrees of warming. Now, at 2 degrees of warming, there's parts of the world that are uninhabitable. Where will those people go? Where will, the, where will our Pacific brothers and sisters go when, when their islands are um, underwater? You know, like, we're really terrified about this, and I'm wondering if you're, if you're worried about this too. That's an invitation to you, Phil. I don't have an access card anymore. I'll be no use to anyone. Uh, but the uh, more the point, James, is I, I got to be honest with you. I don't. I don't agree with that kind of uh, that kind of uh, uh, action. I think it's much more valuable to to calmly discuss these matters with people. You decided otherwise. Good for you. Uh, you go for your life. But uh, you, know, you certainly won't find me supporting you. I'm afraid in terms of the action that you're taking. Okay, now James, you have been looking at your site and back to the issue of restore passenger rail. Let's talk about the goals, okay? So you're on here now. You have a goal to provide free rail to much of the country, free public rail to much of the country. Am I right? Uh, Our goal is to restore passenger rail services. So that means to bring back uh, trains right from um, Whangarei in the north down to Wellington, Picton, down all the way to Invercargill and lots of places in between and make those affordable passenger rail services, not these fancy, um, you know, fancy... uh, uh, tourist trains that we yeah. have today, um, and also to risk, uh, to bring about free public transport. So have you got a figure for us? Have you got a figure on how much restoring free rail across the country free of charge would cost? I, I don't have a, a figure on the rail, but on free public transport, the government is now investing $1.3 billion in a bus ticketing system. They're hiring a company called Cubic, which does um, work, it's an American company that does work in in weapons um, guidance systems. They could spend that $1.3 billion on free public transport for three years. Now, when the gold card came out, that caused um, over a million um, car journeys not to be taken each year. Imagine if all those gold card users got back on Auckland Road. I'd be interested to hear on how much you think it would cost to provide and restore free rail across the country. That's one thing perhaps you could work on. Well, we're not campaigning for free rail across the country. We're, we're campaigning for a, affordable um, public 
uh, rail across the country, affordable passenger rail, and for free local, um, you know, uh, public transport. All right. Good to have you on, James. Thank you for that. That's uh, James Cocker, spokesperson for Restore uh, Passenger Rail. A variety of responses to that. So, Phil, you don't support them. Julia, you do. Um, No, I don't support what they're doing. I don't be gluing yourselves and carrying on like that. I don't support that. But I do think something has to be done. Uh, Tom says, I totally support the Restore Passenger Rail protest stated this morning. Our uh, policies and actions are woeful. Uh, Another one here, 100% support the protesters. Only disruption will create change. Tony, though, says these people are immature idiots who will prove nothing to most people uh, in in New Zealand. So, yeah, a uh, large response uh, to that. Kia ora to you all for um, providing that feedback. It's 14 to 5, the panel on RNZ National. Well, welcoming an international student into your home as a homestay as part of New Zealand culture. We hosted a student when I was young, very fond memories of that, but with international student numbers rising after border restrictions easing, finding homes for them is proving a challenge. Numbers halved from pre-pandemic peaks, but they're rising again. With us as Wellington High School International Homestay Manager, Di Jordan. Kia ora, Di. Kia ora, Wallace. This just raised memories for me because uh, me as a young person, I think I must have been about 11 or 12, ha- having a homestay person, a bit older from another culture, it was one of the most fascinating parts of my life. It was so interesting having this person from a different country come and stay at a very, very home. Um, but you're saying you're facing challenges as a movement. Yeah, we, we are definitely facing challenges, Wallace. It, it's, um, it's directly re- related to the uh, huge growth in the programme again. And um, every school in New Zealand is in the same position because we are all... Um, having this massive growth at the same time. And um, previously it would be much more organic where we we roll and students, um, yes, came in twice the numbers, but the program was well in place and and it organically rolls, home stays in, home stays out. But what we're facing is a regrowth all at once at the same time and um, finding those home stays to match the kids, of course, who want to come to New Zealand, which is popular. Very tough. Yeah, I see you do get a fee. For Wellington High School, it's uh, 320 per week. Uh, and that, in, that you've got to include, you know, side accommodation, you've got to include, you know, your breakfast, lunch uh, and uh, dinner. Julia Hartley-Moore, is this something that uh, might appeal to you? Have you been in a homestay situation? Wallace, I, I have a friend who does amazing homestays. She's got about four kids. She's had them right the way through the pandemic. She's always got them. For me here at Quantico, uh, I'm in a compound, and remember I run an investigation agency, and it's the last place I want someone I don't know. It wouldn't suit. All right, wouldn't suit it, you. What about you, Phil? Well, I don't, but um, my brother for some years did, and I've got a friend on the North Shore who currently is actually a, a young Japanese uh, student, I think university student in this case. But one of the things, Diane, I'm sure you agree with this, but that both of those have been really good experiences 
but what's clear about both is that they've they've got firstly the facilities to do it. So my brother had a bit of a sleep out so that the student could get a you know get some personal space, and secondly, they've really thought it through. They, they're not just saying, "Oh, that's a good idea, let's do that," and all of a sudden it turns to custard. They, they really they really thought it through and had a view about what they're going to achieve out of it, and, and sort of did it properly in terms of setting the bedroom up and so on, so on, so on. So I'm sure you find the same thing when you advise people about whether they should do this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the bottom line is, is this um, young student that comes to your home is a part of your family. They're, they're not a paying guest. They are very much a part of your family and they, they operate in the same way as you do with your own kids, um, have some responsibilities, share the up, share the down, share the, the experiences so that they're getting a true New Zealand Kiwi experience. Um, and that's the key thing is that you are in a position to be able to engage in in conversation, you don't have to be taking them around the country, but you have to care and you have to be available to support and include them in your daily family life. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I can recall, bring back memories now, just, uh, and that's exactly what happened with our family, it became part of the family and uh, the, uh, this young man was treated as part of the family and it was just such a wonderful, wonderful experience to hear, you know, his stories of how he grew up and such like. Is this the sort of thing that you would recommend to other families, maybe driving home listening? to this right now and saying, well, you know, give it a go. Absolutely. I mean, there are lots of benefits from from, um, inviting a student into your home and hosting them as one of your own. I mean, obviously, sharing cultures and diversity is huge. And Wallace, you've just referenced your experience. Um, It enriches the life of the family and it also enriches the life of the young person that's coming over. Lifelong friendships are made and actually I had a phone call from um, a a host family just last week who 30 years ago took her first student from us and that man brought his eldest son back to New Zealand in February. Just, you know, so there are so many stories of, you know, of, of weddings and babies and return visits to New Zealand and families going away if they're able to. But right here on the ground, it's the fun, the bonus of, of having that connection with an international student. And everything is different, but the same. Very, very cool indeed, Di. Thanks for um, giving an insight into uh, home state. That's Di Jordan from Wellington High School there, International Homestay Manager. Now, uh, what am I looking at? I am looking at a a picture. Holly has sent me a picture. What's the picture of, you ask? The picture is of a pickled onion, a piece of cheese on a cracker, and Holly says, Wallace, I can't agree with you anymore. You cannot beat a pickled onion. It is the perfect snack while listening to the panel. Holly, part of the panel family, <laughs> you're a legend, and that is the t- text of the day, uh, the image of a pickled onion with a piece of cheese on a cracker. Eight to five, the panel, RNZ National. Three archaeologists are revealing their favourite things they uncovered post-Christchurch earthquakes. The objects tell a story, and these were told at the exhibition Three Tales of One City, it opens on Friday at Turanga Library as part of New Zealand Archaeology Week. Tell us more, one of the directors of Christchurch Archaeology Project and immediate past president of the New Zealand Archaeological Association is Catherine Wilson. Kia ora, Catherine. Uh, kia ora, it's Catherine Watson, not Wilson. Oh, my, my apologies, Catherine. Thank you for that. I was fascinated by this. Tell us more about the exhibition. 
so it's as you said really so three of us have got together and archaeologists are often asked what their favorite artifact is and we thought we'd expand on that question a bit and talk about what our favorite sites were from all the thousands that we've investigated since the Christchurch earthquakes and select ones that tell quite interesting stories about life in Otatahi Christchurch in the 19th century. That's the, the interesting thing about it. It's the stories that can one an item can tell you. Huh? For example, one of the things is um, there is a site where a waiter was able to afford to commission an architect to design their house. Yes, this is what, this is the site I chose. As it happens, and it's just something I find astounding. Particularly, you know, we're in the middle of a housing crisis at the moment. But in 1879, a, a young waiter, he would have been in his early twenties, could come to New Zealand with his wife and afford to buy a section, and then commission an architect to design a house to put on that section, which is just extraordinary when you think about it. And more than that, happening today. it just sounds truly bizarre. It is a little bit, and to be honest, it didn't end up well for him. He nearly went oh. bankrupt. He had to okay. sell the house. It's, but that's also part of that story and what makes it so interesting and that human connection, I think, to a particular place. Isn't that amazing, Phil? And Phil, I know that you're a big fan of uh, these types of stories. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. And what I love about this story is that archaeology doesn't have to be about sort of Roman times or something. It can actually yeah. be relatively recent. Absolutely. And, it, and, it, and the storytelling that comes from it. So around where I live in Wellington, there was a brickworks back in the day. And all the, the houses that are just around in my area of Mount Cook, some of them are built of that very brick. And so when we took a chimney out of our house uh, in the last few years, we picked up some of this brick and we got interested in, in understanding where it had come from and it had literally just come from around the corner. And that's just brilliant connection, isn't it? It's just wonderful to have that sort of storytelling going on that, that can say, I, I now understand the history of where I'm at much better than I did previously, just out of a brick. Isn't that extraordinary? I just love that story. Uh, a waiter able to afford to commission an architect to design the house. Needless, as Catherine said, it didn't go so well, but nonetheless. Uh, Julia? I think, I just, I'm just stuck on the he could afford an architect. Most people can't afford that today. I mean, it's incredible. But look, I don't, ha- I, I, the only thing I have, well, an artifact, I guess I do actually, it's a letter from one of my ancestors when he was sitting on the beach and he was watching Honey Hickey um, with all his really? women. Yeah, I've got the letter, and it's an amazing, an amazing letter. Um, that yeah. is quite, that is quite something, Julia. Tell, before we go, uh, Catherine, tell me more about Archaeology Week while we have you here. What's the aim or the goal here? Sure. So it's organised by the New Zealand Archaeological Association, and it runs for the last week of April, and there are events all over the country that showcase the different types of archaeology that happen across Aotearoa and share those stories that we find as a result of archaeological work. So some of them are designed specifically for children. There are a couple where you can kids can go along and be an archaeologist for a day. There are walking tours. There is our exhibition. And then there are lots of public talks as well. And I think from memory, most of them are either free or relatively cheap to attend. So we really encourage people to get out there and you know find out more about their local past. And as Phil was saying, kind of connect with that place in a different way and get, get have a much richer understanding of it. Yeah, and as Phil says, um, it doesn't have to. One doesn't have to go back to look overseas, of course, um, to uncover rich histories. 
No, that's absolutely right, and that would be one of the key messages. You know, as an archaeologist in New Zealand, we often get asked, you know, wouldn't you rather be working in England or Egypt? I mean, sure, that would be amazing, but this is our history, yeah. and it's no one else's, and it's so important that we connect with it and understand it. Nice to have you on, Catherine. That's uh, Catherine Watson there, one of the directors of the Christchurch Archaeology Project and uh, immediate past president of the New Zealand Archaeological uh, Association. Um, wonderful responses uh, this afternoon to all topics. Thank you so much, uh, particularly, I guess, oh, Stuart says, smoked mussels and blue vein cheese on crackers. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now oh, we're talking, yes. okay? Now we're talking. Now we're, t- now we're talking. <laughs> and a glass of champagne. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Oh, smoke muscle. It's six o'clock yeah. in the morning, though. <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, sorry. I was thinking more. Five o'clock. Uh, here's Sue says, I just looked up the Marsden Private School, Karori Wellington, where the website says smaller class sizes to take a close personal interest in every student. Why don't you let Phil know? I'm Phil? About to, I'm about to go and do it. No, it's because it's, 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 it doesn't matter about the evidence. It's just what works. Go, go to sign up to Marsden. There you go. Just read the evidence, guys. It's, it's pretty okay. clear. Okay. We will come back to that yeah. uh, tomorrow. And on that note, thank you so much. Kia ora, Phil. Wonderful stuff. That's Phil O'Reilly and Julia Hartimore. I'm Wallace Chapman. I am back tomorrow, of course, 3.45pm. Stay with RNZ. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen is next.